A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Ar-Rajim Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon His Holy Prophet Muhammad And the purified members of His household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad wa ala Muhammad Brothers, sisters, respected viewers Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh We began a few minutes late today I remembered a story that they used to say about, or I have heard multiple times about uh, one of our scholars, Sayyid al-Burujardi. May God have mercy on him. They say that when he became a marja' and uh, his duties of marja'iyah became uh, very time-consuming, when he would come to his daily classes, he would often be late because of people stopping him on the way and having to deal with things. And so one day he felt, or some of his students may have complained to him that sometimes the class is starting a little bit late and time is very important. Time is important and classes are often starting late and so on and so forth. And they say that he got a little bit frustrated and he told them, in my youth, in the time that I would wait for my teacher to come, in that dead time, wasted time, as you're calling it, I learned 15 juz of the Qur'an. I learned half of the Qur'an waiting for my teacher to come and start the class. So, inshallah, this is not wasted time, but we have to make sure that we seize every opportunity when we can. Sallu ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. As you will remember in our live series, the last time that we met, we began discussing the traits or the topic, let's say we are not at the traits yet, the general theme or topic of the teacher. So we are done with the ingredients, the merits, the manners that make a learner, an effective, good learner in Islam, and we moved to the teacher. And we said that a first remark you will often see in our discussion that for the majority of the narrations that we're going to be looking at, there is perhaps not a mention of the teacher specifically. What is mentioned usually is the scholar. And it should be clear and go without saying that one of the main functions of the scholar is to spread knowledge and to teach. But we will find many of the narrations speaking more generally about the scholar than about the teacher and that function of the scholar, which is teaching. That's the first point. The second point is that we went through a little bit of the headings that we want to cover. And the first of these headings, we said we could begin with this one or end with this one. We decided to begin with this one which is, who is this true teacher in Islam? Before we go any further, we decided to make sure that we understand. We're going to go through a lot of narrations, a lot of Islamic teachings about the merits, the ranks, the importance of the teacher in Islam, the scholar in Islam. And so, starting last week, and inshallah, we'll try to wrap up this topic today. We said that, inshallah, 
as we go through these narrations, it will become very clear to all that the narrations, when they talk about the scholar or the teacher, they are in fact talking about first and foremost the true scholar and the true teacher, and this would be the infallible, the person that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appoints as the scholar and the teacher. That is the only true sense of the scholar and the teacher. That's the absolute. Everyone else is relatively a scholar or a teacher. It is relative. Relative to what? To the extent that what they are teaching and what they are saying matches what the infallible is saying, what the Qur'an is saying, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, then they are considered a scholar and a teacher. To the extent that what they are saying matches the truth. And we don't have a guarantee for anyone or anything that this is the truth, except for the ones that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this is the truth. Okay, so this is a discussion that we began and we said once we understand this properly, then it becomes a lot easier for us to go through the narrations and the uh, teachings of Islam with regards to the teacher and with regards to the scholar in general. So today, inshallah, we're going to try to finish this first topic and then we will continue with the rest. And you will see, inshallah, that beyond this kind of terminological or conceptual introduction, this is also going to be very relevant for a lot of the topics that we said we would cover for the teacher, including the traits of the teacher. Who are we looking for? Not only for us to look for in terms of a teacher for ourselves, but who are we becoming? Now that we are learners, to an extent, we are already, and we said this is not a black and white thing, this is always a continuum. You are somewhere on that continuum. The moment you are a learner, you have started to acquire a certain amount of knowledge. Therefore, you should start to match certain traits that Islam says the good scholar and the good teacher, or not to use these terms, in the Arabic way of saying al-alim, the person who carries knowledge, without saying the scholar or the teacher, the person who carries the knowledge should match, should align themselves with those traits. And so we've already started looking at some of those traits the last time we met, and inshallah today we're going to look at a, a few more of those. So maybe very quickly, just to highlight the, let's say what we covered from Sermon 87, from Nahj al-Balagha, which basically took the majority of the lecture last time we met. We said that this generally is a sermon in Nahj al-Balagha that is often looked at more from the spiritual aspect, to look at some of the traits of those who are God-fearing and those who are pious. But we said we want to look at it from another angle. We want to look at it from the angle of our discussion, which is who is the teacher. So if you will remember the structure of the sermon itself, actually gives a lot more weight to the argument that we're making, which is that this sermon is not so much about describing those who are God-fearing and those who have piety. It is actually talking more about those who are the true scholars and the true teachers. That's what the sermon is about. And we see that in the structure of the sermon, and we see that in some of the indications that we find explicitly stated in the sermon. So we said the sermon started 
Imam Ali alayhi salam begins that sermon by describing, by giving us the traits of those who are truly God-fearing, those who have a very high level of taqwa. And so we saw the importance already there given to the fact that these people, yes, they have a purity, a spiritual purity, but they also have access to a pure source of knowledge. And the Imam talked about that. That's first and foremost in themselves. And then the Imam started talking about the traits of these people and the function they play to other people. And we saw that the Imam starts saying that these people are the ones who guide others. They are a source of knowledge, a source of certainty, a source of light to other people when people are confused, when people are lost, and so on and so forth. So already we see indications of what the Imam is talking about. And then the Imam, by opposition to this, talks about another type of person. He says, and there is someone who calls, who presents himself to the world as a scholar, when they are not really a scholar. Okay, the things that they have learned and then the things that they are presenting and teaching are not true scholarship, are not knowledge in the Islamic sense. And then the Imam gives us some of the traits and the descriptions of that person. So by opposition, if now the Imam is saying by opposition, there is someone who calls himself a scholar, but they are not, then we understand what the, what the Imam was talking about initially was the scholar. That person, which we usually, when we study Nahj al we simply call the person who has taqwa. No, in fact, the Imam is specifically talking with the, about the person who carries knowledge and who is the scholar and the teacher. The true scholar and the true teacher has these descriptions, and by opposition, the one who calls himself a scholar but they are not, has those traits, right? And then the Imam ends the third part, in case it was not clear what the Imam was talking about. The third part that we covered, because there's a last part in Nahj al-Balagha to that sermon that we said is not relevant. That third part, the Imam suddenly says, and how can you still manage to be lost? How do you still find a way to still be confused and remain ignorant and remain misguided when the members of the family of the Holy Prophet are among you? Why does the Imam suddenly talk about this? Because the Imam is saying the description I gave of the people who are truly God-fearing, who truly carry the pure knowledge now I'm giving you the actual instances of those people in the real world, and this is the family members of the Holy Prophet, the Ahlul Bayt. How can you still be confused, and how can you be ignorant? How can you be not sure of the truth when you have access to the infallible members of the Holy Prophet and his family? And then the Imam adds, as you will remember, the Imam said, don't take it from me, take it from your own Prophet, who said this and that about them. Right? So the Imam argues from different angles to bring back to the point that the true scholar and the true person who carries the knowledge that you want to consider to be the true teacher, the teacher in the absolute sense, Islamically, is none other than the infallible. Don't look for any other source of true knowledge if the infallible is there. That's what the Imam is saying. If someone is still contradicting or saying otherwise or calling to themselves in the presence of the infallible, then right away 
you should be able to eliminate that person. Okay? So this is, generally speaking, what we covered last time to give one instance, one example of this argument that we are making, which is when we are going to encounter the teacher and the scholar and the narrations and the traditions of Ahlul Bayt, your mind should first and foremost go to the infallibles, go to Ahlul Bayt first. Not go to, unfortunately, we've been brought up, we've been trained all, our whole lives. When you think scholar, when you think someone who carries knowledge, your mind might go to so-and-so scholar. People like you and I who have spent their lives devoted to knowledge and religion and very lofty and noble goals and purposes and activities, but they remain people like you and I. These are not the people that God appointed as he appointed the infallibles. And that's the difference we're trying to make. So today, inshallah, we said we're going to try to finish this topic. So we have two more, two or three more passages that we want to go through. The first one is probably going to take a little bit longer, so shorter than the sermon that we saw. And actually a passage that we have encountered, parts of at least in the past, and then two very short, quick passages as well to confirm that what we're saying. The first passage, again from Nahj al-Balagha, from Imam Ali alayhi salam. This is a passage that has been placed in Nahj al-Balagha in the short sayings. Right? So at the very end, after the, the letters, the writings and the letters of the Imam, after that part in Nahj al-Balagha, the compiler, Sharif al-Radi, he also added short sayings from the Imam. But some of them, and this one in particular, are a little bit longer than just a short saying. And this is a very famous passage in which Imam Ali salam is talking to his very close companion, Kumail ibn Ziyad. And he talks about knowledge. Again, we could spend a very long time on this passage. We are focusing on this dimension, on this angle in the passage which has to do with who is the true teacher? Who is the true scholar? Okay? As a second example to what we covered. But because I think that this is a, an extremely important passage too, I'm going through the entire passage as we did with the sermon. And inshallah, when we will end, I will add a reminder to, to show the relevance again, as we mentioned when we began, the relevance of the traits we are seeing here, they're going to be very important later so that we don't have to repeat them. Okay, We may mention them, but we've already been exposed to them when we get to the traits of the scholar. Who is the true scholar? Who is the good scholar? Who is the bad scholar? We've already seen an example of that last week where the imam talks about 60 traits of those who are the good scholars. That's in, in the sermon that we saw last week. And today, inshallah, we're adding to that. قال كميل ابن زياد أخذ بيدي أمير المؤمنين علي بن أبي طالب عليه السلام فأخرجني إلى الجبان فلما أصحر تنفس الصعداء ثم قال So كميل ابن زياد says The Imam took me by the hand He brought me to the cemetery And so we walked in the cemetery Until we were in the middle of the desert And there the Imam sighed تنفس الصعداء it's the long, heavy sigh. 
It's someone who has sorrows, someone who is disappointed, someone, and that's exactly the state of the imam. And we will see that very clearly in this passage. So he says the imam sighed, then he said. So why is this the state of the imam? As we will see, the imam is talking about, yes, knowledge in general, but he's really talking about knowledge as it concerns people. As people become learners and teachers, carriers of knowledge. The imam is actually complaining here that there is no one who wants to learn or there is no one worthy of learning, of carrying this knowledge. The entire passage is about this. And again, so keep in mind, the reason I mention this is that so that it becomes easier for you to contrast, right? To put people in different categories as the imam will do very clearly here. Okay? And the main notion that we want to focus on is this notion of al-alam al-rabbani that we often hear we often see on the covers of books when so and so is the author okay so here we're going to see how the imam talks about this person that he clearly puts in this category of al-alam al-rabbani okay so after we understand this so the imam basically he has no one to teach People don't want to learn. The imam is frustrated with this. So he needs to say something to someone. And he did that with a few of his companions here and there. One of them, Kumail ibn Ziyad. So Kumail, just the description, now that we understand this, we understand the description the imam is, give, is, uh, Kumail is giving us. He says, the imam takes me by the hand and he goes to walk where with Kumail? He goes to the cemetery which in itself is perhaps very symbolic and very significant. We could maybe say, the imam is saying, among the, those who are living, no one will understand what I'm really saying. But maybe those who have already passed on, they will really appreciate what I'm saying. So let's go to the cemetery. And then even then, the imam keeps walking until, he says, we're in the middle of the desert. He just keeps going until we are we find ourselves in the desert. And then the Imam sighs and then he says. He says, Ya Kumail ibn Ziyad, Inna hadihi al-qulub aw'iyah, fakhayruha aw'aha, fahfad anni ma aqulu lak. He begins with this. He says, Ya Kumail, these hearts are containers. And the best of these containers are the ones which can preserve best their content. So, learn or preserve, فحفظ, right? It's about how well you can preserve what I'm giving you. So, preserve what I say to you. So here when he says, فحفظ عني, we could say it could mean learn or memorize. But we could also think, you see the choice of the imam, he chose Kumail in that case. And he tells him, preserve and maybe that's the reason why today we're repeating these generations and generations later okay so this is what the imam begins with and he says people are of three types people are of three kinds and this is by the way 
the entire purpose, everything we will say is secondary. This is the passage of importance. This is a, the relevant passage. النَّاسُ ثَلَاثَةَ فَعَالِمٌ رَبَّانِي وَمُتَعَلِّمٌ عَلَى سَبِيلِ نَجَاهِ وَهَمَجٌ رَعَاءٌ أَتْبَاعُ كُلِّ نَاعِقٍ يَمِيلُونَ مَعَ كُلِّ رِيحٍ لَمْ يَسْتَضِيءُ بِنُورِ الْعِلْمِ وَلَمْ يَلْجَأُ إِلَى رُكْنٍ وَثِيقٍ He says, people fall in three types, in three categories. عَالِمٌ رَبَّانِي so let's say a divine scholar, a lordly scholar. That's one. وَمُتَعَلِّمٌ عَلَى سَبِيلِ نَجَاتِ And so a seeker of knowledge who is on the way of rescue, on the way of deliverance. وَهَمَجٌ رَعَاءٌ So this is a little bit difficult to translate. It doesn't translate perfectly. So in the translations, if you... Go back, you'll see that they say, for instance, and common rot or the scum, as in, you know, the dirt and the uh, things that are, you know, uh, sand, dirt, and things that have no value or that are dirty or very common. And in fact, all of these are meanings contained in this. Literally, if you go back, hemorrhage are tiny, tiny flies like mosquitoes. That's how they're defined in, in the uh, dictionaries, in Arabic dictionaries. Al-Hamaj are very, very small flies that are like mosquitoes. Ra'a' is a description used to talk about masses of people who act like barbarians, like savages. Okay, they act like animals, uncivilized, without reason, and so on and so forth. The imam is combining both of these terms together. So regardless of how we define hamaj accurately, the main traits here is that the imam is talking about something very insignificant, something very small, something without value, right? Without any importance, that's one. And something that is very spread out, the masses, common, that you find everywhere. And perhaps, and the imam will talk about this, this is perhaps something that you can move around very quickly, right? Just like a mosquito, if you were to blow on it, you can move it very easily, for instance. Or if it's specks of, of dirt, for instance, you blow on them and you move them away, Right? And the imam is exactly going to describe those people with this image. So, reminder. The imam is saying people fall in three categories. Category one, the divine scholar. Category two, a learner on the path of salvation. A learner, someone seeking knowledge on the path of rescue. Or, hamajun ra'a. That's it. These are the three categories of human beings, according to Imam Ali alayhi salam. You are either alam rabbani, you are either muta'allim, you are either hamajun ra'a. And we just gave the description and the traits of who hamajun ra'a would be. Okay? That's the first point. Now what we want to really see is who 
are these Alam Rabbani. And by the end, it should be clear that this is not really the category we're aiming for. The category we're therefore aiming for is to be a muta'allim, to be a learner, a seeker of knowledge on the path of rescue. Because the description that the Imam is going to give of the Alam Rabbani is not really going to be something we can easily apply to a normal human being. Okay, that's the point from all of this. So the Imam says, after he says this third category, he gives traits. He says, those people atba'u kulli na'aq. They are people who follow every caller. If we want to use a very generic term. Na'aq is not a caller, just a, a random caller. It's a specific sound in Arabic. It can apply to two animals or in general, someone just yelling out or calling out. It can apply to the crow and it can apply to sheep. If you go back to the books, crow may, might be more generic. The imam is saying they simply follow any caller, but the caller, the imam is making a point here. There's a reason we say Imam Ali, the, the king of eloquence. Why? Why a caller that has to be an animal? Why does the call have to be an animal call? Okay, so this shows that it doesn't have the true merit, the true value. They follow any caller. No, they follow the call of any animal, the Imam is saying. The Imam is saying. And perhaps he is even adding one more dimension. If it's sheep, and this is exactly what we say, you know, when we say sheeple, people are just like sheep. If one of them baas, as they say in English, B-A-A, the sound of a sheep, then all of them might follow. We don't know why, why he's calling, where he's going, why. Uh, no reason. We just follow. Because there was a call. So we obey the call and we follow it. So the Imam says, though that third category of people, if it's not the divine scholar, and if it's not the seeker of knowledge, then they are the ones who follow every call. Okay? even if it may be the call of a sheep or a crow. What else? And they bend with every wind. Every wind that blows will bend them in that direction. These become very important traits. We have to look, especially in today's world, the world of trends and, and social media. And every day there's a new flavor and every day there's a new buzzword and every day there's a do we bend as soon as there's a new wind? As soon as there's a new call, do we just follow the call? Or do we apply some critical dimension to what we're hearing, to what we're saying? Who is behind it? Which direction is it going? Is it to our advantage or not? Does it match our values or not? Right? There's a lot of work here that needs to be done when the imam is giving this type of description. Then he says, he's giving us more descriptions of these people and perhaps the reasons why they are like this. He says, لم العلم. They did not borrow any light from the brightness of knowledge. So those are not people who act this way because they have any knowledge. This is out of ignorance that they are like this. That's one. And two, And they do not seek refuge in any reliable 
corner and any reliable support. Okay, these people have no argument. These people have no basis for taking the positions that they take. They are simply moved by whatever is happening around them, by the popular mood of the day. That's sufficient to move them, whatever call and whatever wind may be happening. Then the Imam says, Ya Kumail, Al-ilm khayrun min al-mal. So here the Imam is going to, and because it's completely and entirely relevant to our topic, I'll continue with this. As I said, there's a lot of relevant passages, even though it's not all directly relevant. The Imam here continues. He starts explaining the merits of knowledge and therefore those who carry knowledge. So he compares it to the one thing that is perhaps universally recognized as that one thing everyone is seeking and looking for. And so the Imam directly goes for that thing, which is the accumulation of wealth and money. And he compares it to the accumulation of knowledge. So he says, Ya Kumail, Al-ilmu khayrun min al-mal. Al-ilmu yahrusuka wa anta tahrusu al-mal. Wal-malu tanqusuhu al-nafaqah. Wal-ilmu yazku ala al-infaq. Wa sani'u al-mali yazulu bizawalih. So here he starts by giving three traits. He opposes in three ways the accumulation of knowledge and the accumulation of wealth. So the first one, al-ilmu. So he says, Ukumail, knowledge is better than wealth. Knowledge guards, or more generally, knowledge takes care of you while you have to take care of wealth. That's the first one. So here the question is, and you have to think, this could be a whole discussion, just that one little passage. How much do you work for wealth? And how much does knowledge work for you? Are you at the service of that which you have? Or is it at your service? Are you serving the wealth? Or is the wealth serving you? Are you serving knowledge? Or is knowledge serving you? That's what the Imam is opposing here. And he's saying in the case of wealth, You have to work very hard to take care of it, to be at its service, to maintain it, to secure it, to grow it. And the more you spend, he continues, the more you spend, the more you lose. In the case of wealth, in the case of knowledge, the more you spend, the more it multiplies. And this can have a lot of meanings too. If you have knowledge and you share it with others, this forces you to practice your knowledge, to remember your knowledge, to review it. You might understand things by being forced to discuss them with others. Knowledge multiplies as in others take it and do things with it. This is not necessarily always the case with money. It goes and that's it, or wealth. And then the Imam continues when he says, The the products, the outputs of money, they disappear. They go away, they decay after the thing itself has decayed, because it's material. At the end of the day, so long as it's material, it will end. The Imam continues, Ya Kumail ibn Ziyad, Ma'rifatul ilmi deenun yudanu bih. Bihi yaksibul insanu ta'ata fi hayatih. And so, inshallah, when we explain this passage in English, keep it in mind, we're going to see a hadith related to it. به يكسب الإنسان الطاعة في حياته وجميل الأحدوثة بعد وفاته والعلم حاكم والمال محكوم عليه. So he says, O Kumail, 
Knowledge is a faith that is believed in. It's a religion that you believe in. That's knowledge. It's, it's more than a way of life. Okay, these are hard principles by which you live by. They are part of your identity, part of your value system, part of your worldview. This is the point that we've been trying to make since the beginning of the series. A true Muslim understands this. A Muslim who has a deeper understanding of this religion understands the central place of knowledge in this religion. So the Imam here says, It is a religion that is believed in or a faith that is believed in or acted upon. With it, the human being acquires obedience during his life. And this can be interpreted in two ways. It could mean that people are going to obey this person because they have knowledge. And it could also mean that this person finally secures the purpose for which they are created, which is to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And both are important and we're going to see indications of both as we go along. The Imam is talking about this world and the next. In the first case, he's, if he's talking about this world, and that's exactly what we've been saying since the beginning of the series, that our religion is not only saying learn knowledge because it helps you in the afterlife. It's saying it also gives you might and power, as we saw again and again in the narrations in this world too. And Imam Ali السلام, talked about this in many, many passages that we went through. So this is one of the things that give you power. And today we see that. We see that power and dominance and obedience in the world is in the hands of those who have knowledge. Those who use, those who, you, who control the flow of knowledge, the production of knowledge, the consumption of knowledge. And those who do not fall in the other category that the Imam is talking about, we're going to see that. In this specific passage, when he says, بِهِ يَكْسِبُ الْإِنسَانُ الطَّاعَةَ فِي حَيَاتِهِ وَجَمِيلَ الْأُحْدُوثَةِ بَعْدَ وَفَاتِهِ وَالْعِلْمُ حَاكِمُ وَالْمَالُ مَحْكُومٌ عَلَيْهِ You can have all the money in the world, the Imam says. The ruler is knowledge. And the ruled is wealth. The ruler is not wealth itself. You have to know what to do with the wealth. You may have less of it. If you know how to use it, you control your and everyone else's wealth. Okay, so the imam here is saying, with it, the human being acquires obedience during his life. And we said there's two meanings. The spiritual meaning of obedience, the reason for which we're created. This is the only way to worship. You have to worship based on knowledge. Otherwise, you can't obey God. Or you want to be obeyed in this world. You want to be in a position of dominance in this world. Not to be subservient to others. Right? And a good mention of his name after his death. So through knowledge, you want to be remembered. You want, you, you want to maintain a good reputation after you have passed on. This is done through knowledge. And our daily lives are proofs of this. Whether it's on the religious side or on the non-religious side. Those that humanity continues to talk about are not always those who have money. Those people come and go. It's those who are, one way or another, related to knowledge. And then the Imam says, وَالْعِلْمُ حَاكِمُ 
So knowledge is the ruler and والمال محكوم عليه and wealth is ruled upon. And this is, this is a, a whole topic here that we could spend more time on. Even at the more material, if we want to look at this just from the material aspect, this whole idea of the importance, if you want to compare knowledge and wealth, and how wealth cannot be the be-all, end-all. Unfortunately, we're trained in these societies from a very young age that this is the main reason for living, to accumulate wealth, to hoard wealth, acquire as much of it as possible. That's the purpose of your existence, day in, day out. Every hour, every ounce of energy that you have should be going in that direction. And this equals success, means you made it. They say there's a, there's a saying, they say that those who acquire some amount of money, you see the difference between those who have deeper knowledge and those who don't. When they acquire money, what they do with it. So they say those who don't really know what to do with it, they're going to buy very shiny, blingy rims for their cars. And those who know what to do with it are going to try to invest it in something that will create wealth. Right? That will be something that is that maintains this money for themselves and to pass on to future generations. This is at an individual level. At an individual level, you compare those who have a more deep understanding, a deeper understanding of this knowledge component. Look at the people who have knowledge in this world, even though they may be extremely wealthy, you may not necessarily see it in the car they ride or in the clothes they wear. This is not what distinguishes them. And those who fall in this category, unless it's being done with knowledge in mind, usually, this is not really how it's done. Usually, these are people who have fallen for more the superficial level of, I use wealth to align with the current trends of the day, for instance. This is not going to necessarily create more wealth. That's why we're saying, unless there is knowledge behind it, unless it's being strategically used, this is not going to lead to any higher level of power, of dominance, of whatever it may be that people are after, even at a purely material level. Right? You see that. And this is important for us to understand so that we don't fall into this because unfortunately we tend to in our communities. A lot of importance, an exaggerated amount of importance can go to these things that really fall in the category of appearance, wealth for appearance, not wealth to generate wealth, not wealth to generate power, right? Because for that second way of using wealth, you need knowledge. And this is what the imam is talking about. And then if you look at the level of at an international scene, the same thing can be applied. The countries, at the level of states, the ones who control the knowledge are the ones who control the chessboard, as they say. Even though other countries may have more wealth and more resources. It's not about the resources. Imam Ali salam here is saying the resources are ruled upon. By what? And knowledge is the ruler. 
You have to control the knowledge. You control the knowledge, you control the chessboard. And then you know what to do with your resources, individually and collectively, as a community, as a society, as you can build empires and go control others, right? We're not saying do or don't do. We're saying we have to understand how the world works, even at a material level. This is all without even adding the spiritual dimension, the religious dimension to this. The Imam is being very clear in, in what he's describing. The, the description is very clear, very objective. In any case, the Imam continues, Ya Kumail, halaka khuzzanul amwal wahum ahya' wal-ulama'u baqoon ma baqiyad dahr a'yanuhum mafqoodah wa amthaluhum fil-qulubi mawjoodah. O Kumail, those who amass wealth are dead even though they may be living. This is someone who is alive, active, in front of you. You see them every single day. But their entire existence is dedicated to amassing wealth. Imam Ali says this person is dead, even though they may be alive. Because they're not contributing to the purpose for which they are really created. And by opposition, while scholars or those who carry knowledge, As for the scholars, they remain alive or they remain so long as the world remains. So long as there is a world, those people are alive by their knowledge. Whether you know it or not, their knowledge is alive. Okay? And then the Imam adds, The body... The person himself is no longer there. They're absent. Mafqood. وَأَمْثَالُهُمْ فِي الْقُلُوبِ مَوْجُودَ But their traces are present in the hearts. People still study and learn and talk about and discuss the knowledge they left behind. The Imam continues. And now he, he's going back to Kumail. He tells him, هَا إِنَّ هَا هُنَا لَعِلْمًا so the Imam says, here, look, here, there is a, an enormous amount of knowledge. And the Imam pointed to his chest. If only I would find someone who could bear it, who could carry it. Okay, so this brings us back to understanding the reason why the Imam is talking to Kumail in the first place. He's saying there is no one worthy of this knowledge. And then he's going to explain. He says, Bala. That's not entirely accurate. It's not that there is no one that wants to carry it or that who can carry it. But who are they? Who are these people that I found? So the Imam is going to give us the description of four men, four types of people here. The first one, he says, Bala. Asabtu. I have found, the first one, أَصَبْتُ لَقِنًا غَيْرَ مَأْمُونٍ عَلَيْهِ مُسْتَعْمِلًا آلَةَ الدِّينِ لِلدُّنْيَا وَمُسْتَظْهِرًا بِنِعَمِ اللَّهِ عَلَىٰ عِبَادِهِ وَبِحُجَجِهِ عَلَىٰ أَوْلِيَائِهِ The first category of someone who I found to want to carry this knowledge. Yes, I did find such a one, but either, you know, and these are the four categories, he was... We could say someone who is eloquent, who is a good memorizer, smart, intelligent, right? Laqinan. 
He learns quickly and he can repeat quickly and very well. Okay, so he says, I found one who fits this category, but who could not be trusted, who could not be relied with, relied upon with it. Why? He is someone who exploits the religion for worldly gains. So what do I do with someone like that? And by virtue of Allah's favors on him, he would domineer over people. He wants to use now religion. He wants to use what God has given him to, for no other reason than to become a leader over people, a king over people, dominant over people. And through God's arguments, he would lord over his devotees. He wants to become the lord over the people. Right? So this is someone who is smart, intelligent, who has the intellectual capacity to learn, but their problem is what? That they want to use that to dominate other people. Okay? Religion is just one more tool, and it's an excellent tool, by the way. Second kind of person that the Imam says. So he says, I did find some people. It's not true that I found no one. That's the first one. Someone who has the intellectual capacity, but they can't be relied upon. The second one. This is a good guy. The second category, the second type who wants to learn, he says, or one who is obedient to the carriers of truth. Excellent. This is someone who wants to follow those who carry the truth, who is perhaps trying to learn and carry some amount of knowledge themselves, but without any insight in his sides. And at the first appearance of ambiguity, the doubts ignite into his heart. So here, if you go back to the commentaries, a lot of them talk about how this person is perhaps someone who it's as though they don't have the intellectual capacity to learn the knowledge. So this is someone who can't really learn because the knowledge is too deep, too complex for them. And they're not spending enough time, enough effort to really learn. They have good intentions, but they're not really going all the way in their seriousness in studying. I want to add another dimension to this. This is not what the Imam is talking about. When the Imam says, La basirata lahu fi ahna'ih, the Imam is talking about something else. This is someone who lacks insight. This is someone who lacks a deeper understanding of things. They take things at face value. They're too superficial in their understanding. Remember when we talked about the ingredients of the learner, we said this is someone who goes to the depths of the meaning. You don't accept just at face value, at superficial, simple understanding. It's not enough, especially not in today's world. You have to look at everything from two, three, four, ten different ways to see what applies and what are the subtleties and what else have you missed. Right? The Imam here, he's saying, this is someone who loves the truth, and they love the people of the truth and they follow them. They're obedient to them. But at the same time, this is someone who lacks insight, a deeper look into things. So this is someone who's going to be very easily tricked. And the 
way to recognize this person and to apply the criteria to ourselves. He says the moment they are exposed to something ambiguous, they start having doubts. They're no longer sure. Why? Either you know or you don't know. Why do you have these doubts? Where are the doubts coming from? Why can you be easily manipulated? What's missing? So the Imam is saying this is the second one. You can easily manipulate this person. Okay? So this person is lacking, right? Here, this person is on the one side. They have a superficial understanding of things and they easily fall prey to doubts. Then the Imam says, So neither this one nor that one. He just gave us two people and then now he's going to add two more very quickly. So this is a third category. Someone who is famished with pleasures and who is very easily led by passions and by desires. Okay, So someone who has absolutely no discipline over their lower desires. Okay, so they might have, so the imam here did not, and this is important, we might think knowledge is only about, you know, your intellectual capacity to learn. Here the imam is not talking about just your ability to learn. These people might have all the intellectual requirements to be an amazing scholar, but they have other traits that are extremely unfavorable. And the imam is saying, I don't want any of those people. Those people are not worthy of my knowledge. Right? So the second one is the person who falls very quickly to doubts. This third one is the person who has no discipline over their desires, over their passions. So someone, the Imam is saying, who is not able to have discipline to control their desires, this is incompatible with becoming a scholar. They don't go together. You're either a scholar or you're someone who falls prey to their desires. These two don't go together. Then the Imam adds, Or someone who is obsessed with hoarding and collecting wealth. He doesn't say what, but clearly the Imam is talking about wealth. Someone whose entire purpose is just to amass wealth. They're obsessed with hoarding and collecting. These are the four that the Imam says, I found. And so he spoke about those two, and he said they are unworthy. And now here he says, "Laysa min dini fi Those two, the, those last two that I just mentioned, neither of them can ever become a guardian over religion in any manner. The closest thing to them, as an example, are the wandering cattle. When you leave the, the cattle, when you don't control them and herd them, you just let them graze. So they just walk aimlessly, each one of them going somewhere. The imam says that the aimlessly wandering cattle as they graze, this is the example of those people who are supposedly trying to acquire knowledge. But if these are their traits, then this is what they really are. Nothing more. Wandering cattle. And then the Imam adds, كَذَلِكَ يَمُوتُ الْعِلْمُ بِمَوْتِ حَامِلِيهِ And thus, knowledge dies as those who carry it pass away. So what's the Imam saying? The Imam is talking about himself. He says, I have all of this 
incredible amount of knowledge when he pointed to his heart, to his chest, and he's saying, I just wish that there was someone I could give this to, someone who is worthy of it, someone who can carry it. And there is no one. No, in fact, there are some. And then he mentions those four. And he said, so none of them can carry it. And this is how knowledge dies as those who carry it pass away. Okay, so we would say that's it. The Imam is saying, so I can't pass my knowledge to anyone. Okay, why are we talking about all of this? We said we're trying to see when in our religion there is a mention of the scholar or the teacher, who should our mind go to first in the absolute sense? So here there's a first example. The Imam is saying, I'm the only one that your mind should go to when you think teacher and scholar. Right? He's going to add now. Because he put people in three categories. He said there is either alam rabbani or muta'allim. And he's now saying even the muta'allimin are scarce and few. The majority of people who are seeking knowledge are going to fall in those four categories. And the other people are hamajun ra'a. Okay, so what's left? Now the imam is going to come back after he says, So that's knowledge dies with the passing away of those who carry it, referring to himself. Now he says, Allahumma bala. There's an exception. But there's an exception. Now the Imam is going back. He's no longer talking about the seeker of knowledge. That's what every good human being should be aspiring to. To fall in the category of the seeker of knowledge on the path of salvation. He's going to Al-Alam Al-Rabbani. Who is Al-Alam Al-Rabbani? After the Imam says, basically, if I pass away, this knowledge will pass away with me. Except, it's true. There is one exception to what I'm saying. And it is what? That the earth is never devoid of one who maintains God's argument. Either openly and while well known by everyone, or dissimulated and hidden. Or in a way you could say afraid and hidden. And by the way, both apply to the Imam. Right? In his own life. There was a time when he was afraid and hidden. And there is a time when he was well known and acting as an Imam. And even as a Khalifa. Okay? But the Imam is now giving us a rule. And this goes beyond those who are followers of the Imam. The Shia. All the Muslims say, we hear and we obey if Imam Ali tells us something. Right? This is the Imam. This is what Imam Ali says. Many of the greater scholars in the Sunni tradition and the Sunni school, they have written entire commentaries on Nahj al-Balagh, including these passages. It's, it would be interesting to go through all of them to see how this is explained away. Because many of them recognize and say openly, in appearance, this looks like it matches the creed of the Shia. They start by saying that, as Ibn Abi al-Hadid al-Mu'tazili and others say. They say, in appearance only. So when you hear the Imam say this, knowledge is going to die. The knowledge that I carry in this chest is going to die as I pass away. 
And that's how knowledge passes away with the passing away of those who carry it. Except that God has made this principle, this rule, لا تخلو الأرض من قائم لله بحجة Except that earth is never going to be devoid of someone who maintains, who represents God on earth and who is representing God with a strong argument, a clear argument and proof. إِمَّا ظَاهِرًا مَشْهُورًا أَوْ خَائِفًا مَغْمُورًا So, anyways, we could spend a long time here. Let's not get uh, sidetracked. He said, in order that God's arguments and proofs never fail, and then he says, وَكَمْ ذَا وَأَيْنَ أُولَئِكَ أُولَئِكَ وَاللَّهَ الْأَقَلُّونَ عَدَدًا وَالْأَعْظَمُونَ قَدْرًا So, for how long does this continue? Imam is basically asking rhetorical questions. And for how long? And where are they? By God, they are the ones who are few in number, but the greatest in merit and rank. It is through them that God preserves his arguments and his proofs. Until they can entrust those arguments and those proofs to others like them. And they plant them as seeds in the hearts of those who are similar to them. هَجَمَ بِهِمُ الْعِلْمِ عَلَىٰ حَقِيقَةِ الْبَصِيرَةِ So the, the expression the Imam is using, he's saying it's as though knowledge comes to them all at once, enters their hearts all at once. Why? Because in a lot of ways, the knowledge that they get is not the knowledge that you and I get by reading a book, by learning every piece of data, information, one by one and putting it together. This knowledge is revealed all at once into their hearts. So it leads them to a spiritual insight or a spiritual understanding. And this is what makes them at peace. They are calm. They find pleasure and bliss in facing the truth, in facing certainty, in knowing, being uh, with conviction about the truth. They have yaqeen. Basharu, ruh al means they find happiness, they find peace, serenity, bliss by knowing the truth. How many people can match this explanation when the Imam is describing those people in this way? Okay, in this way of understanding the khutbah of the Imam, the, the explanation of the Imam to Kumail. And Kumail would be one to understand what the Imam is saying. Then the Imam continues, وَاسْتَلَانُوا مَا اسْتَوْعَرَهُ الْمُتْرَفُونَ وَأَنِسُوا بِمَا اسْتَوْحَشَ مِنْهُ الْجَاهِلُونَ So they, these people, they're going to be finding easy that which everyone from those who live in comfort, they find difficult. And they find pleasure in the things which those who are ignorant, which is basically everyone else compared to them, those who are ignorant take as being eerie. Something that leads to istihash. You're not familiar with it. You, you're afraid of it. You're, you're not at peace when you're around it. وَصَحِبُ الدُّنْيَا بِأَبْدَانٍ أَرْوَاحُهَا مُعَلَّقَةٌ بِالْمَحَلِّ الْأَعْلَى And they accompany this world with bodies whose souls remain attached to the higher domain. 
How many people does this apply to? And then the Imam says, Those are the vicegerents of God on his earth. And the ones who truly call to his religion. The Imam says, Oh, how I long, how I yearn to see them. Then he tells, I'm done talking, you may leave if you wish. Okay, so very quickly, the Imam, this is very, it was not long, we took time to explain, but this is very short, very condensed. Okay, this is why Sharif al-Radhi put it in the shorter sayings of the Imam at the end of Nahj al-Balagha. But when we understand all of this, when we put this second passage beside the passage that we saw last week, now, when we're looking for this person to teach, who should be the first the first should be, ideally, the infallible. This is the true teacher. This is the true scholar. And we saw very clear indications of this in this passage from Imam Ali, as well as the sermon 87 that we saw last week. Okay? So allow me maybe to finish with one more hadith here, so that we don't uh, keep you too long today. The second hadith is actually, and inshallah, with this we can wrap up everything we said last week and this week. This passage is a very small passage, it's not even a line, in a very long hadith that Imam al-Kazim gives to one of his closest companions, Husham. One of the devoted companions of Imam al-Kazim comes to him and the Imam gives him this very thorough very detailed explanation about what reason is and what knowledge is. Al-ilm, al-ma'rifa, and al-aql. Okay, this is this is a, a treasure, this passage from Imam al-Kazim alayhi salam to Hisham, inshallah, one day we can go in much more detail and spend time going through it. But in short, it's made up of a lot of passages that you can take out and extract lessons and principles from. One of them is this. He says, Ya Husham, Nusib al-Khalqu Allah. So, he says, O oh Husham, creation happened for God's obedience. Okay, there's a logic here. It's important. Okay, why did creation happen? Why did God create everything? So that he is obeyed. Okay, Nusib al-Khalqu Allah. Creation happened for God's obedience. And there is no salvation. You can't be saved except through obedience, except through obeying, because that's why God created you. Okay? Two. And obedience only happens through knowledge. Okay? Important. That's our whole series. And obedience, obedience to God, worshipping God, serving God, only happens through knowledge. And how is knowledge acquired? Knowledge is acquired through learning. Okay, The imam is making a point. One might say this is very trivial. It's very clear. No, it's not. Okay, so the imam says, And knowledge is acquired through learning. 
والتعلم بالعقل يعتقد and knowledge is acquired through learning and learning is achieved through a reason which believes it so it's not enough that i acquire the information i have to actually believe the information okay these are two levels one level is i know the information the next level is we called it action it's not enough to know you have to show that you know you have to do something that you know it has to show in who you are it has to do something to you this is the i'tiqad this is a belief this is a linking that you are committing to this knowledge in a very practical way okay والعلم بالتعلم والتعلم بالعقل يعتقد so how is this done it's done through reason ولا علم الا من عالم رباني and there is no knowledge except through a alim rabbani a divine scholar who is the divine scholar we just went through the whole passage where imam ali alayhi salam says the people are three alimun rabbani muta'allimun ala sabili najat hamajun ra' you want knowledge imam al-kazim says you want knowledge knowledge is acquired only through al-alim rabbani And that's why we said, therefore, the definition of a scholar, a scholar is a scholar to the extent that their knowledge matches what the alam Rabbani represents. 5%, that's the 5% that they are a scholar in. Not independently. In themselves, they're just people like you and I. In the part that represents the imam and what the imam says and what the Qur'an say and what God wants, they are a scholar. 90%, that's how much of a scholar they are. 99%, 99.9%, that's how much of a scholar they are. And that's what we're looking for. Okay? وَلَا عِلْمَ إِلَّا مِنْ عَالِمٍ رَبَّانِي And then the imam adds one more time. وَمَعْرِفَةُ الْعَالِمِ بِالْعَقْلِ And how do I know this is Alam al-Rabbani? You achieve it through reason. Follow this structure and you once again have our entire series. This one and the previous one, the Aqa'id one. Why are we created? To obey. How do you obey? By getting knowledge. How do you get knowledge? By becoming a learner. How do you become a learner? وَالتَّعَلُّمُ بِالْعَقْلِ Becoming a learner is not, impor- is not enough if it only means acquiring information. You have to act on it. And there is no knowledge except from Alamin Rabbani, a divine scholar, Imamah, Nubuwa and Imamah. That's Tawheed, Nubuwa and Imamah. And وَمَعْرِفَةُ الْعِلْمِ بِالْعَقْلِ And there are rational proofs that will bring you to prophethood and that will bring you to Imamah. You can prove it rationally. Therefore, aql is important. That's what the Imam is saying. We said this is a small passage in a very long sermon from Imam al-Kazim alayhi salam in which he's explaining to Hisham all the merits, the importance, the role of aql. This is one of them. Why is aql important? Aql is important because it leads to imamah. And why is imamah important? Because that's how you acquire the knowledge to worship God. The same logic that we've been following from the beginning.
Okay, but in a few words from Imam Al-Kadhim So here, the point from all of this is that, inshallah, we're clear about when we see this Alam al-Rabbani, the true definition of it is who? It's the infallible. Okay, so in our world, it means the Ma'asum, the Imam, Ahlul Bayt, alayhum What about others? Are there scholars or not? Yes, there are. But only to the extent that they represent the truth. The truth that we believe in, in this ma'asum. That we're supposed to be able to know through aql. To the extent that you represent the ma'asum, and what the ma'asum teaches, and what the Qur'an teaches, you are a scholar. The more, the better. The greater scholar you are. And this becomes a very easy criteria to apply. But it also means that we have to spend a lot of time understanding the ma'asum, knowing what the ma'asum says, knowing what the Holy Quran says, and the Ahlul Bayt say. That's the ma'asum. Okay? And of course, there's a couple of other related topics to this, but there's a couple of them that we talked about in the Q&A very quickly last week, so I'm not going to be spending too much time on it. What about non-religious knowledge and we said this is recognized and this is respected in our religion so long as it does not contradict something already mentioned in the religion okay so that's uh, generally speaking we covered that and maybe the last thing to always bring this back to the practical considerations why are we talking about all of this okay so there's a theoretical component of course it's an introduction to everything we're gonna Talk about, and inshallah, now we are ready, now that we finished off this part, we can really start talking about choosing the teacher, what are the traits of the scholar, and so on and so forth. We can talk about that. Now we can easily apply every time we see alim and teacher, where our mind goes first, and then how we filter through people. That's one. That's a first practical consideration. Secondly, we want to be able to identify those people. Okay? And what we have seen until now is, one, there is the alam al-Rabbani in the true sense, in the absolute sense. That's a ma'asum. But there are people walking in their footsteps. People hinting to them. People pointing towards them. And that's what we have access to today. And even in the times of the imma alayhim as-salam, there were people that the Emma themselves presented to the world as their representatives. Okay, so now we started to see some of the traits. A lot of these traits, if you look at the Alam al Rabbani in themselves, they're unmatchable. But people can aspire to them. No one will be the absolute personification of all of these traits. But you may be able to represent those traits 10%, 50%, 80%, so that you become a guide to the people, so that you become the stabilizing force in people's conviction and faith. Right? And so this is what we are moving towards. And this is the duty that comes with the learner. So, in short, one, we want to be able to recognize the ulama. Of course, to follow them, to choose them as teachers, and two, to become them. The traits that we started to see are now going to be our responsibility. The more knowledge you have 
equals the more of these traits are supposed to show in you. So there's a very practical consideration to this. This is not only about looking outside. This is not only about looking to others to see who in the world matches the traits that the imams are giving about the highest level scholars. It's also an inward reflection. How much of this am I moving towards? How much of this can I say I match? It has to be aspirational. It has to be part of the plan. You are a learner. It means you already have a certain amount of knowledge. The traits that we're going to be seeing, now we started. I didn't want to spend more time last week. We already spent too much time last week on the sermon. And that was not the purpose. But as I said, if you go through them, there are 60 traits mentioned in that sermon that we saw last week. That's already a lot. And today we saw a whole lot of other traits for the good and for the bad. For those who are truly scholars and those who claim to be, but they are not really carrying the true knowledge or the knowledge in the Islamic sense that we saw. I'm going to stop here. Happy to take questions, concerns, comments, but let's stop here and inshallah next time we meet we move to the next heading in the series. Okay, so I think that there's two questions in there. The first one is, uh, do we consider ourselves at a disadvantage when we compare ourselves to previous generations who lived in the presence of a, of a known imam, whereas in our time and in our generation, uh, we do not have access to our imam. That's first. Uh, and then maybe I think you were going to ask a first question, but you skipped it over, which is, how do we 
um, benefit from the knowledge of the Imam when he is uh, not accessible to us. So um, I'm just going to start with the, the second question about are we at a disadvantage? 100%. There is no doubt that we are at a huge disadvantage. And the more you um, appreciate that you are living in a time where your imam is not accessible to you, the more this is supposed to reflect in your general demeanor, your attitude and life. Someone who is fully aware of the role of an imam and who understands that the imam is not accessible to them, they live in a state of sorrow. You are always in a state of sadness and therefore of action to stop this state, to stop this situation from remaining in place and perpetuating itself. And there's like this is considered or supposed to be seen by a true believer who appreciates the role of an imam. This is a calamity. This is not just a, a passing thing where you don't have access like a, I don't know, a friend who traveled away. It's not like that. You basically do not have a direct link to true knowledge. So basically you live in a state of confusion and loss until the imam reappears. And your job is to do the best you can do with what you have. And you fully understand this. But this is not a state that is supposed to be your normal state. This is a temporary state and you're going to put up with it and you understand that this is a, a divine tribulation, a divine test that you're going to go through and that this is going to require a very high level of duty and responsibility that comes with it. So to say, you know, are we, as if there is any doubt, are we at a disadvantage? No, 100% we are at a disadvantage and you're supposed to feel that and live that way. To know that you're supposed to have access as a human being, you're supposed to have access to your divine guide on this planet and this earth and currently you do not. For all the reasons. And that includes ourselves as being reasons, contributing to this. Therefore, it's not a matter of therefore I just live in sorrow. It's therefore what do I do about this? Okay, so that's first question. The second question, and I think you touched on it in your answer. How do we benefit from the knowledge of the imam based on what we were talking? The infallible is supposed to be the teacher and the scholar. So if the imam is not there, then what do we do? How do we still benefit? The short answer to this, the very strict, direct answer to this, is therefore you have to connect to the imam. The benefit from the imam that you have as a believer is not limited to the knowledge of the imam. And to, come, to go back to the point that we just covered, the fact that you do not have access to the knowledge of the imam is a huge calamity, and we recognize it. But knowing that there is an imam, someone who lives in a way that is directly connected, you are conscious. Every day you have some sort of routine in which you remember the imam. You remember your connection to your imam. You're not going to live the same way as someone who does not have that in their life. No way. It's impossible. Okay, You are connected to a an infinite source of energy, of identity, of values, of principles, of belief that other people are not connected to. And this is going to direct how you live, how you view the world, and so on and so forth. 
So you need to find ways to get to that. I would say, in short, get to know the imam. Study what an imam is in general and who your specific imam is in particular. That's in short. If you don't know something, you can't connect to it. You have to spend time understanding the imam. And the more you understand, the more you connect. The slightly longer answer to this, or the slightly indirect answer to this, is that if we are seeking knowledge, there is also a lot of knowledge. And unfortunately, we don't do our share in acquiring it. The knowledge of our imam, of course, will be contextualized, will be much more applicable to our reality. But there is a tremendous amount of knowledge that the imams have left us. And the imam, his knowledge will be 100% aligned with all of that. Studying the Holy Quran, studying the Ahadith, it's on that path. And it doesn't need to be chronologically Okay, So it doesn't need to be that I have to study them in the order that they appeared, although that would be great and it would, have, would add a historical dimension to, to all the, the knowledge. Um, but that component usually, unfortunately, is often neglected. And this is something we mentioned at the beginning of the series. We said, unfortunately, many of us are too quick to jump, us as a community as Muslims in general throughout the ages. Many of us have been too quick, if you study Islam, the history of Islam, the history of thought in Islam, too quick to jump to trying to come up with our own solutions in a very creative way, which are uh, brave and, and laudable uh, and commendable efforts to come up with our own theories, to come up with our own ways of dealing with the problems, when perhaps if we had spent more time seeing what the Holy Quran is saying and applying it, or understanding how Ahlul Bayt might have already hinted to these things first, before I go and try to create something brand new and come up with my own solutions, maybe there's a lot less need for me to create my own solutions ad hoc, innovative, creative, because Ahlul Bayt have already given me 30 or 60 or 90% of the answer, but I just don't know. And so part of the reason why we're trying to structure this series, it's an effort in this direction, to say we're going to talk about a topic, and we took this topic as a first one for the reasons that we mentioned, the topic of knowledge, not to create our own theory about it. We're putting all of our thoughts and opinions and theories to the side, to the extent possible, and we're going to say, what have Ahl al-Bayt said about this? What has the Holy Quran said about this? Then we can add our own layer. But the fact that we're using scripture that inshallah to a large extent we consider to be authentic we think this is already putting us light years ahead of someone who is trying to come up with their own theory of what is the place of knowledge in society and how important is knowledge and reason for a human being. Let's come up with our own theories and philosophize about it and create our own notions, our own terminology. Okay, all good. Has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our creator, said anything about this first? Maybe we should start there. That will save us a whole lot of time. That's why he revealed this part to us, so that we save time 
You know, maybe that's 10 million years of human evolution that he saved us the trouble of having to go through by just giving us that truth. The same thing with the teachings of Ahl al-Bayt, Right? So unfortunately, I think this is the, the reason I, I talk about this, is there needs to be a higher level of connection and being familiar with, being at ease with the actual teachings, the traditional teachings contained in our scriptures. And then we add another layer to this, which is now we need to come back to our reality and see to what extent, what of this applies and to what extent, and what's the gap, and what have our general principles told us to do here to meet this gap, to deal with this gap. Okay? If we don't go in that direction, then basically we remain at the level that the Imam was saying. This person who learns the information, but they don't have the insight. And so every time they're confronted with an issue, they lose their certainty. Right away, they it's ambiguous. I fall into doubt. I don't know what I'm doing, where the truth is. I'm completely lost. Who knows? Maybe the other side has the truth. Maybe I was wrong all, all along. If this is the case, then there's still a, a huge gap. You need to work to work on. Uh, you need to work on the foundation first. Okay, that was a very longer answer than we wanted, but inshallah, it's uh, yeah. No more. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين.